Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Talk 11. In this talk, Bruce Ullman tells us about shortcuts around the world, the building of the Suez and Panama Canals. Part B. Okay, so we just built some hospitals and we were having problems with the Chagres River and such like. And then, of course, there was a problem with the Panama Railway because it was in the way. Canal was going to take very much the same line, but although it was in the way, they also needed it because they needed to transport people, they needed to transport construction um, materials, and sometimes they needed to take spoil away. So they had to buy it. Unfortunately, if someone owns something and you have to buy it, it's a bit of a problem. So the canal company had, was over a bit of a barrel, and they ended up paying $40 million for the railway, despite the fact that it was pretty derelict. It was far in excess of what it was actually worth. After all, they'd only taken out a capital of $120 million. So that was a third of their capital gone at the stroke. Anyway, construction started merrily on the 1st of January 1881, and it attracted a lot of good French engineers to, to, to work on it. Unfortunately, retaining them was difficult because they kept dying of disease and of the odd accident. I mean, overall, the whole of, over the French construction period, from 81 to 89, 22,000 people, approximately, died, of whom 5,000 were French. So they did put their effort in. And the French, generally, were only were the sort of technical people. They weren't the builders. The company spent lavish sums entertaining Colombian officials because the Colombians, if you didn't grease their palms properly, they would always find ways of obstructing what was going on. So they had to be kept happy. So more money went into that. Panama's population, not very big, I'm sure that's fairly obvious, and there certainly wasn't enough spare labour to build a canal. I'd already seen with the railway, but most of them came from China and Ireland. Well, the Chinese and the Irish had had enough building the railway. They weren't interested in building the canal. And in fact, nine-tenths of the workforce came from Jamaica, about 40,000 in 1888, peak. They came from Jamaica because post-slavery abolition, sugar production went right down, became too expensive, and people lost their work, jobs. There just wasn't the work for people. So they came to work on the canal hoping to make enough money that when they got back they could buy themselves a little plot of land, but at the business or something like that. Of course, very few of them did make enough money. Most didn't. That's if they returned at all. The Panamanians were not at all keen on these workers. They just weren't happy, and there were constant fights between them, especially on Saturday night. And the police always came in on the side of the uh, local population. There was occasions when the, the Jamaicans were living in some pretty horrible conditions. They lived in a hostel in some of the towns. One of them was burned down. Great loss of life inside. Police did absolutely nothing. The whole thing is... Um, the, the book I've got, unless you want a, a technical engineering tone, there aren't that many books. This is Hell's Gorge. It's a great book but it's more of a social history than an engineering history because the, 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 the 
the state and the way people lived and how they were treated was, well, I'd say it's fascinating, it's also appalling. And they actually lived in dreadful conditions most of the time. One of the best sources of information that's quoted quite a lot in here was from the British consul in Panama, whose name was Claude Mallet, and he was constantly writing to the government, our government, the British government, the ambassador to the Colombian government, Panamanian administration, trying to, to improve the conditions of, of the workers. And he was there, give or take the odd spell of illness, throughout the whole period of the construction of the canal, British and American. He, he was an amazing attempt. I can't say how successful he was, but he, he really did work very hard on the... Because, of course, the Jamaicans were British citizens. They, it was all part of the empire. He did work really hard trying to do something about it. There's a myth perhaps started by the Americans, that the, the French used manual labour to try and build the canal, and the Americans used machinery. That's just not true. The French, as they've done in, in Suez, uh, used dredges and such like, not as much as maybe they might have done. And you've got to remember availability. We're talking about sort of early days of this sort of construction, so they weren't as, as, as strong, they weren't as big, they weren't but as powerful as were available later. But they did have kind of, um, equipment, and that, if you remember what the Suez ones looked like, very, very similar to what was in use in the Suez Canal. So they did, they had some quite good equipment, up to a point. But their biggest problem was the uh, organisation of the railway. It was mainly single track, it was in good condition, and it just didn't have the capacity to haul away spoil in insufficient quantities. They tried, as they had in, in Suez, to dump the spoil on the side of the canal or locally. But unfortunately, totally different conditions. It blocked the local watercourses, caused swamps even more than they had already, breeding ground for mosquitoes again. So it really was, it just wasn't up to it. And even when they started using the railway, there were frequent derailments, blockages where the trains you know, were getting in each other's way. And yet they were finding that they could actually only operate their, their nice machines for a couple of hours a day because there was no way of getting rid of the spoil. So they just weren't sufficiently organised. By 1885, it was beginning to be clear that the sea level canal just wasn't practical, it wasn't going to happen, and that they should build, start using locks, which would mean not having to dig anything like this big channel through, through the Continental Divide. But Lesseps resisted this, and it was two years later, in 87, we eventually agreed and they designed locks for either end. Locks, and uh, he got involved quite heavily, uh, were designed by Gustav Eiffel, done a lot of engineering work, and they actually started building the lock. But unfortunately, engineering problems, money problems, and if, if you thought he'd had to uh, resort to underhand means to get money for the Suez Canal, he tried everything to get money for the Panama Canal. And he was successful in some respects. It eventually ran out. And in 1889, 15th of May, the company went bankrupt and foot. It stopped. It was eight years they'd been building. They were about two-fifths of the way through it. And they'd spent $235 million. So they'd spent twice as much as he'd estimated. And they were nowhere near half way through. And that's what sort of would look like once it's been abandoned. The company collapse was a scandal in France, as you can imagine. Um, the French Parliament commissioned a, set up a commission of inquiry. 
which took them four years to, uh, to, to, to come through, 104 French legislators were found to have been involved in the corruption. This was, on, this was on the, in the Parliament passing bills to get money for the canal when clearly it shouldn't have happened. Um, the Seps, himself, Ferdinand himself and his son, who'd actually done most of the, um, most of the work on the canal, I'm not sure how, how often this Ferdinand went. I think he only ever went to Panama twice. His son went. He and Eiffel, they were all convicted of corruption and sentenced to large fines and to prison sentences. Um, they didn't actually go to prison. They were, you know, say, by now, 1893, the Seps was nearly 90. He was 88. So he wasn't um, really in the fit condition to go to sea. Um, but of course, the small investors in France were just totally wiped out. They, they lost so much money. It was scandal, I guess is the right word. Clearly, the only way to recoup any of the money was to get started and actually finish it. So, in 1894, four years later, they set up a new company, funnily enough, a new Panama Canal company, created to finish the job. And they, had, they got a new, con a new agreement with Columbia and started work, but only really in a small way. The one thing they did do was they actually did a much more detailed survey of the route, which um, was useful for later. And they, they set up, they were going to build a lock-based canal. I mean, the Americans had always been against it. It's not ours. We don't want it. They'd been constant sniping at the project throughout the whole time. The newspapers were always having articles saying how bad it was, how it wasn't working. Don't put any money anywhere near it. So the new effort never managed to get any mu enough muck capital to do the job, and the maximum was three and a half thousand people working on it. They compared with forty thousand previously. All they were really doing was maintaining the equipment and just doing enough to comply with the terms of the concession while they looked for a buyer. The asking price was one hundred and nine million. So I mean, you can argue that the French effort was doomed from the start. They didn't understand the disease issues, they didn't really understand the engineering issues, and the opposition from the Americans didn't help at all. But it wasn't entirely futile. They dug, dredged entrance channels at either end, and they knew a lot more about what to do. They got a lot of material out of the political cut, but nothing like enough. And there was still all the equipment sitting there. So that just plodded on very, very slowly. But Theodore Roosevelt, who is now the president, good old Theodore, he was totally convinced that the Americans, for their own strategic interests, needed a canal, particularly being reinforced when, during the um, Spanish-American War, the USS Maine had blown up in Havana Harbor. But that had blown up, and it took them forever to get reinforcements back round from the Pacific into the Caribbean to have a good go at the Spanish. And he said, look, we're going to have to have a better way of doing this. So he really said, we've got to build a canal. So, of course, he set up another congressional Isthmian Canal Commission to decide where to, where to build it. And guess where they recommended? Nicaragua. <laughs> however, however, Philippe Bano-Varia and William Cromwell, who I can pronounce, they were investors in the French company, and they wanted some money back. So they lobbied like mad the Senate 
Congress to choose Panama rather than Nicaragua. Their best ploy, they kept saying, but Nicaragua's got volcanoes. You're going to build your canal near volcanoes. It's only, in fact, the route was only 20 miles away from an active volcano. And during the debate in the Senate, they presented every senator with a Nicaraguan stamp. So this wasn't something they'd made up. This was a Nicaraguan stamp. And that Nicaraguan stamp had emblazoned on it an active volcano. <laughs> the other thing was that every, they kept saying, but Nicaragua was not politically um, stable, which is a bit of a joke considering what happens next. So Roosevelt pushed to go to Panama, and that's what happened. The Spooner Act went through with Panama, and they bought the canal company for $40 million. So this is the American government doing this. It wasn't anything else. And then Roosevelt negotiated with Colombia to build the canal. And they came to an agreement, they signed the treaty, and the Colombian Senate rejected it. They said, we don't want the Americans, thank you very much. We got a treaty with Colombia, guaranteeing that Panama would stay part of Colombia. We just negotiated the treaty with them. So what does Roosevelt do? Well, because he didn't do it openly. But there'd been a, an independent movement in Panama for quite some time. So he, he sort of indicated to them that if they wanted to rebel, he would make sure that the Colombians couldn't stop them. So that's exactly what happened. And in November 1903, Panama declared its independence. And there just happened to be US Navy ships just outside either end of Panama, and the Colombians couldn't send reinforcements to their army. And of course, the communications other than by sea were pretty well non-existent. So Panama became independent. And funny enough, you wouldn't believe it, but Banovaya became the Panamanian ambassador to the United States. And he negotiated a treaty with the United States where the Americans paid Panama $10 million and took control of the Panama Canal Zone in perpetuity, overseen by the Isthmian Canal Commission, ICC, should be referred to in the future. So we now have a, a new canal being built. John Wallace was appointed the chief engineer and looks so bureaucratic, doesn't he? And William Gorgas was appointed, and this is an important appointment, the chief sanitary officer. And just to divert a little bit, because it's relevant, he was a US Army, as you can see, he was a major in the Army, US Army medical officer. And in, after the Spanish-American War, he was appointed to Havana as their chief sanitary officer. And by this time, they were beginning to understand the transmission process for malaria and yellow fever. And he, by putting in all the right sanitary conditions, eradicated yellow fever from Havana and Cuba. And he got international fame for that. And he was appointed to do the same thing in Panama. So he'd got a strategy for combating the disease in Panama. But unfortunately, a bit like global warming, there was a certain amount of mosquito denial um, <laughs> going on. And in this case, we know it's true. And some of the more conservative elements in the senior management didn't support him, so he didn't actually get anything done to start with. Because of the apparent and very real corruption in the French efforts, 
the Americans went overboard the other way. They instigated an enormous amount of red tape. All requisitions, even the smallest, you know, paper clips, had to be signed for in triplicate, and they had to go to Washington for approval. I mean, this was absolutely, you know, the system collapsed in, into paralysis. Poor Wallace was being pressurized to get building, and yet he just couldn't get hold of the equipment he needed. The other factor, funny enough, isn't it? These things never happen now. Many of the posts in the administration of the ICC and of the Canal Construction Company, or whatever you like to call it, they were filled by friends and relatives of the uh, congressmen and politicians and important people. And of course, you didn't get the best people that way. So the poor quality of many of them just made it difficult to get anything done. So frustrated, Wallace resigned. And then he was replaced by John Stevens. Now, he doesn't look it. He was a real tough railway man. He built railways in the States. And if he wanted something doing, he did it. He didn't consult anybody else. He just did it. And he arrived in 1905. He quickly realized that forget the construction, forget building it. You've got to get the underlying infrastructure right. There was no housing facilities that were usable for the large workforce. The Panama Railway was in a state of decay. Much of the equipment that was left from the French, a lot of it was actually still usable, but it was, as you can see, it was just sort of left lying there. It was 15 years, you know, the jungle had taken over. So get it out and use it. Because there's an awful lot there. The workshops he got there, when he opened them, they were in really good nick, and a lot of the machinery was perfectly usable for maintenance, but just hadn't been looked after. So he set about getting the infrastructure right. He upgraded the railway, improved sanitation, he renovated what French buildings there were, built many, many more. He improved the efficiency of the drilling process and the ability to actually understand the structure of what they were trying to build through, because it just Things had moved on. You give, give the French their due. It just wasn't possible. They didn't know about it at that time. He got it going. And with, um, with Stephen's support, Gorgas implemented all the right things to get rid of them. Well, not get rid of, reduce as much as possible the malaria, yellow fever, drained ponds, fumigated. You, mosquito netting you know, hadn't been used before. Proper water supply systems such like. So all in all, that had a dramatic impact on the disease levels amongst workers. And then, of course, they had to start recruiting the labor force. I mean, can you believe it? You know, after all we've been through with this canal, and we're talking about 1905 still, so it's years after, they still hadn't decided how they're going to build this. They've been doing all this work, but nobody had actually said, well, what's the design to be? So Roosevelt got together a team of engineers. Now, it didn't take lots of years this time. There were 13 of them, so at least they were going to get a majority, one way or the other, uh, to investigate what sort of canal to build. Don't understand this, but they voted 8 to 5 to build a sea level canal. I don't understand it, but they did. But luckily, Stephen said, tough, <laughs> it's not going to be a sea level canal. And he got Roosevelt to agree. So they agreed to build a, uh, a locked canal. Again, there's this sort of myth 
when you go on your cruise through the Panama Canal, they always say the French wanted this sea level canal. And the Americans said, no, we're going to build a locked canal. Well, actually, long before de la Saps convinced them that they were going to build a sea level canal, a senior French engineer had suggested a, a canal design which was almost exactly the same as the one that Americans actually built. They had continued digging in the Caleble Cup, which is, this is the Americans still digging, using French equipment still, because they're going to have to dig it down anyway, whether it's sea level or locked. They still had to dig an awful lot of dirt out of there. So the new design built a lock here in the Gatton, the Gatton Dam, create an enormous artificial lake which will control the river, fly to locks down to the Atlantic, similar at the other end, and this, this shows the new locks as well, but similar at the other end, locks here, dams to get the water, and Bob's your uncle. I mean, what you then have got, although you had to do a little bit of dredging through this artificial lake, that was largely navigable, so you can just you can go through there. The only bit that they had to do any real large quantity of digging was still the Caleba Cup. So that was the design. Once the canal became very, very popular, like some time later, they found that even with this massive lake, they were running out of water. So they built another canal up here, further up and the, the uh, Chagres River, create another artificial lake, which meant they could provide water for the canal. The new, can the new bits they've done, and I never understood why they didn't operate the dual locks, that, but they always ran them in pairs, so you're going up both and down both. If you do one and one, you save an awful lot of water. However, that's not the way they run it. Anyway, so they now have sorted out the water problems by building in the extra canal. And here you can see the, the profile of, of the canal. And it really was quite a, an enormous um, undertaking to build the Clebra Cup. In 1906, Roosevelt came to look at the canal, see how they got on. This was the first time the US president had ever left the United States. So that's him sitting on one of the nice new diggers. And then the other question, which hadn't yet been answered, was who was going to actually do the building? Do we get contractors in to do it? Or do we use the government? Is it done by the government? And originally, they wanted the, the suggestion was they'd get contractors in. They actually took tenders, but Stevens didn't like the people they chose. So they threw that out and decided that it would be built by the US Corps of Engineers. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, you land at the free, free enterprise, and they, they build their canal using their, their army. The French, who you think of being much more sort of socialist and nationalization, they do it with a private company. Anyway, he appointed Major George Washington Girtles as the head of the army bit, but he was served under Stevens. But Stevens got frustrated with the government involvement and wasn't getting what he wanted to do, so he resigned and he became the head of the project. Stevens had done what he went there. By the time Girtles took over, they'd done all the infrastructure. They got all the infrastructure working, ready to get on and shift the earth. Just a quick talk about the workforce. They had a stratified, they called it, two-level workforce. You had gold and silver jobs. The gold ones were sort of all the high-level engineering, the clerical, the supervision, skilled labor, and they were reserved for Americans, white Americans. And all the rest, basically unskilled manual labor, that, well, that was all right, that cheap 
migrant labor or immigrant labor. So they imported a lot of Italians, Greeks, and Spanish, where there was very, very high unemployment at the time, and they brought them over. Unfortunately, they were highly militant and politically radical, kept going on strike, but they didn't last long. Because they thought that, well, they, they come from these warm climates, they'll be all right. Anyway, they weren't, so they went home. But the Caribbean governments were not too keen. The Jamaicans said, no way, and they actually imposed a tax. If anybody wanted to go and work on the canal, they, were, uh, they had to pay a pound, and that was a lot of money, tax, just to be allowed to leave. Because remember, when the French went bust, they got all these workers sitting there. How they? They couldn't get home. So the, the, the governments, the Jamaicans, had had to pay to, for them to be repatriated. So they, they'd had their fill. They, and the Jamaicans really weren't keen anyway. But eventually the Barbadians agreed and they started recruiting from there. At one point, there were 20,000 Barbadians working on the canal and it's reckoned that 10% uh, of the Barbados population and 40% of the adult males were working on the canal. Living conditions, well, there was appalling racial discrimination with the workforce. It was totally brutal. Silver workers had little job security, not a lot of health care, food wasn't provided, poor if any accommodation on the work sites. It was all right, it was all right at the ends. And you know, appalling working conditions. Though with the, with the health, it wasn't as bad as it had been before. And pay wasn't terribly good. I mean, you can say that slavery was, had been abolished in name only. Uh, it did improve as time went on. Gold workers, on the other hand, it started off pretty badly. They got nothing to do much. And there was a, a very bad um, alcohol problem amongst them because they had nothing there. And a lot of them just went home. A very large turnover. But they instituted a program of in improvements. They built clubhouses managed by the YMCA. Billiard halls, billiard rooms, assembly rooms, reading rooms, bowling alleys, baseball fields, dark rooms, gymnastic equipment, ice cream parlours, soda fountains, and last of all, a library. And most of that was paid for by the, the ICC, not um, by the people themselves. And they started importing very good food so they could all buy their burgers or whatever it was they ate in, in those days. They got so good that turnover really reduced and many people brought their wives and families out. The conditions had become so good that, they could, that it was safe and good. So that made an enormous difference. The alcoholism dropped and such like. We got going. We've got the uh, infrastructure working. We've got the labor force. So let's start building. They divided the project into three divisions. The entrance at one end of the three-mile breakwater in, into the Pacific. There was the dam and the locks at this end as well. And then everything in between was the middle area, middle section. And that was put under the responsibility of Major David Gayard, the US Army engineer. By August 1907, a million cubic yards of material was being excavated every month. A bit late, and that was a record. This was August, that was in the rainy season. As a record. Soon after, they managed to double that. And at the peak of production, if that's the right word, they were shifting 3 million cubic yards a month. Uh, the Calibra Cut 
once we've got the Chagres River tamed by building the dam, the Calebra Cut was a major obstacle. 360 feet high, they needed to reduce the water. The water level was 85 feet. So the bottom of the cut was the 39 feet. So they were having to cut down. So they were digging one a lot. They had to go a long way down, more than 300 feet. What they didn't know, because even then, despite the, the surveys, was that the, the ground was incredibly prone to, to landslide. I mean, if you go along most of the cut railway cuttings here, or motorway cuttings, you have an angle of slip, I think that's the correct term, of oh, 45, 60 degrees, you can go up. There, you're talking about 20 degrees, because it would just slip out the way. I'll show you a picture in a moment. The scale of the work was massive. They had 6,000 men working there, cutting, drilling holes and filling them up with dynamite. They used 27,000 tons of dynamite uh, on this to move, the, to get it done. And they were up to 160 trains a day, a little bit different from the French efforts. I mean, when you get organized, you can do these things. But as I say, they, landslides were frequent. This is not a very good picture, but that's one of the massive earth movers they had big piece of rock they were shifting. But that's what happens when you get a landslide. That's the, that's the same piece of equipment, somewhat buried. And they were having to deal with these all the time. But Gayard provided quiet, clear-sided leadership, apparently. And he, it was due to him very much that they got the work done. And then in 1913 May, nine years after they'd started, they actually got some of these steam shovels down to the new canal bed and they actually were able to drive these things right the way through so they they got a dike at one end because they built the dam by now and the water level was rising in the artificial lakes but they built a dam across the end so it didn't interfere with the working here and in october that year woodrow wilson who was president by then in washington pushed a button on his desk and telegraphically that ignited the uh, explosives underneath the dike, blew the dike away, and the water came in. They had to finish it, they hadn't finished. And this, is, this shows you what they'd intended. The dotted lines were what they thought they were gonna build down here with the French. That's as much as the French managed to achieve. So instead of doing that, they actually had to do that because the ground was so unstable. They ended up digging out 99 million cubic yards out of it, 50% more than they thought they were going. Obviously, it wasn't like this everywhere. They, they thought it was 50% more than they thought they were going to do it. Once they got the water in, it's much easier, as they found with the sewers, to actually get dredges in and dredged, and that's what they were doing here. Unfortunately, Gayard died of a brain tumour in December 1913, age 54, he never saw the opening of the canal, which he contributed so much. But in 1915, soon after they opened it, they renamed the Calebra Cut. They renamed it the Gayard Cut in his honour. And that's, that's an aerial shot of it going through, as it is now. You can see it's really absolutely massive. That's the locks at the Pacific end. It is really quite amazing. They built the, the Gatton Dam, which I've referred to. That was, at the time, the largest earth dam in the world. It controlled the river, 2,100 feet thick at the base, seven and a half 
thousand feet long, creating the largest, again at the time, man-made lake. They built the locks, three at each end, finished in 1913. So in January the 7th, 1914, the first ship to go through, it was just to try it out, it wasn't uh, an old French crane boat was the first ship to complete the transit. They planned massive celebrations for the opening. Unfortunately, the First World War started, so they cancelled all these celebrations, and it was a totally low-key, modest affair. The Panama Railway steamship SS Ancon was the first boat to make an official transit on August 15, 1914. There were no international dignitaries. The canal was the most expensive construction project in US history at that point. It cost $375 million. That's $23 million less than they'd estimated. 75,000 people worked on the project. At its peak, it was 40,000 people. According to hospital records, 5,609 people died. How accurate that is, I don't know, but it just shows what can happen when you control the disease. And they dug out a total of 240 million cubic yards. Technological marvel cut off an enormous amount of time from the... And it's still in use today. And you could see the military significance, which is why the Americans wanted it. They actually, I haven't said this, they actually had it widened slightly. They, they designed the locks to be a certain size, and then as they were building them, they said, no, that's not big enough. We need our, largest, our latest ships to be able to get through. So they actually increased the size. They were about to increase the size when the Second World War started. And they actually did a little bit of work, but it never actually happened. But they were able to reinforce the US Pacific Fleet after Pearl Harbor. They got their aircraft carriers through the canal. They had to take the lampposts down on the side because they were interfering, but they went through the locks. And we had three presidents, Roosevelt, Taft, and Woodrow Wilson. This is just what it looks like now. The entrance locks going through the Calibra Cut, artificial lake, massive dam, and that's the locks going out. They put new locks in now, and there is the potential for a Nicaragua in them. <laughs> but, but I think that's on hold at the moment. They've fallen out, the Chinese have fallen out for Nicaraguans, I believe. <clears throat> The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.